new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two or three times It will be very difficult and impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We start a great series for you today. So my friends, once more, into the fray. I've got to admit, I'm really excited today as this show launches our three-part mini-series, What Stands in Our Way. Over the next three weeks, we're going to look at what we need to overcome in order to limit anthropogenic climate change. This is not a look at specific policies we need to enact as that could take the rest of the year to run through a country by country analysis, nor is it a condemnation of any political philosophy. Rather, it's an overview of the three core areas that form the foundation of any argument against the immediate and rapid addressing of the greatest issue of our time. These three areas are, one, the economics of climate change mitigation, two, the social determinants of adapting to a world that is focused on such mitigation efforts, and three, the arguments and psychology behind such thought processes used by deniers of and advocates of delaying action on anthropogenic climate change in the ensuing crisis we face. Now, some of you may want to debate with me the fact that we face technological hurdles or policy inaction and that they are making major obstacles that this mini-series is missing. However, keep in mind that the economics of tech and the economics of policy, as well as the social and psychological behavior of the electorate, form the foundation of those. As such, it is on these three tenets that we'll focus. So with the three obstacles we face identified as economic, social, and psychological, let us begin this week with the economics of addressing climate change. A couple of notes before we begin, though. First and foremost, the show this week requires a massive list of scientific papers and per usual every paper mentioned or referenced on this show will be linked on the website which you can look up at southof2degrees.org. Secondly, the economics of climate change is nuanced and there is almost more debate here than if all the religions of the world got together to come up with a unified theory. You have Nobel laureates, incredible scientists, brilliant economists, and a fledgling albeit growing group that ride the line between the latter two that all weigh in, yet few agree completely. Now, I'm nowhere near qualified to debate a Nobel laureate, nor do I have the multi-decadal history of personal research to actively debate these amazing individuals. So bear in mind, while I will be presenting both pros and cons of many of the analyses here today, it comes not from me, but an extensive body of research. In the context of this show, I am merely a communicator to help you, the listener, gain a better appreciation for the economic hurdles we face. If you want to get my opinion, find me outside this show and I'm sure we can have a spirited conversation. For now though, let's dive in. As odd as it is, let's begin today with the Drake Equation. Now, you may be thinking, okay, Brian, you've completely gone off your rocker to start an economic discussion with the Drake Equation. And while you might be right, I promise you it does make sense. For the uninitiated, the Drake Equation is a mathematical formula created by Frank Drake in 1961 to estimate the number of current and communicative extraterrestrial civilizations within the Milky Way galaxy. So for now, while the remainder of you now question my sanity as well, 
Let me explain. The Drake equation, while it has been updated and tweaked over time, in its basic form is a formula that uses seven different variables to come up with an answer on advanced extraterrestrial life. If you are interested, you can look at each of these, but for now, all you need is that context. The problem with the Drake equation is that every one of its variables is an estimate or a guess. Sure, our knowledge of the universe has expanded over time, but solving an equation with seven unknowns creates such a large bound that the output is almost meaningless, save for the fact you can get a number to look at and call an answer, no matter how far from reality it may be. I lead with the Drake equation as modeling the economics of climate change and various mitigation pathways is not too dissimilar. The reason? Well, let me ask you, what is the financial cost of inaction? Yes, some of you might say death of the planet or massive human population collapse, while others may hold to the opinion that while we will have to reorganize the economy, humans will be just fine. But that doesn't answer my question. What is the dollar value, the euro value, the yen value of inaction? Struggling with that thought? Well, you're in good company. However, the growing field of climate economics looks at just that. To get a grasp of the uncertainty, let's look at a single example. Per our conversation on the Australian bushfires of 2019-2020, we found climate change has already caused events like that to become 30% more likely. Right now, we are roughly at 1 degree C of warming. So what is the chance of such an event at 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees or 3 degrees? Yes, we can model the probability of such an event, but as for the cost of the fire, we would have to consider the location, duration, magnitude, and all the downstream implications such as health issues from smoke, lost economic or agricultural output, how increased CO2 concentrations released from the biomass and soil affect both regional and global trends, especially considering CO2 typically hangs around the atmosphere for anywhere from 300 to 1,000 years. Does that create a bushfire snowball effect? How is that for an analogy? Does such a fire spike regional ocean acidification, and how does that affect the migratory habits of fish that some island nations depend on as a large portion of government revenue? Get the idea? Yes, we can and do model all of these things, but like the Drake equation, while our knowledge allows us to narrow the upper and lower bounds, we are still using guesses however well-informed to create a financial model. And with that many variables over such a large timescale, the outcome has such variability that the answer essentially becomes meaningless. Extrapolated to our climate model, a small calculation error in each of our variables can cause a rather large variance over the course of 100 to 200 years. With that comforting lead-in, let's look at our options before we get too deep in the weeds. We have three basic strategies to control climate change, and those are abatement of greenhouse gases, removal of greenhouse gases, or managing solar radiation. The last option is, as many of you already may be thinking, both a scary and highly impractical approach. The second, as we have discussed before in our look at greenhouse gas reduction technologies, are an option, yet none of these technologies to date have been tested at scale. This leaves us with the only immediately realistic, albeit expensive approach of abatement. So with abatement chosen as the focal point, there are four possible paths from an economic standpoint. One, business as usual and hope for the best. Two, a cost-benefit optimum. Three, limit of a certain degree Celsius of warming with an enforceable hard cap. Or four, limit of a certain degree Celsius over a 100 to 200 year averaging period. A business as usual approach, by all estimates, lands us at about five degrees 
3C of anthropogenic warming by 2130. As in an age of crony capitalism, there is little to no expectation that polluting industries will look much further than the profits of their next fiscal year. A cap, on the other hand, is what the world community via the UNFCCC and the IPCC, as well as organizations like the Climate Reality Project and even us at South of Two Degrees, are working to hit. However, in order to be a proponent of a hard cap or averaging limit, you must acknowledge that there is a cost to doing so and accept that for what it is. So what's the number you may be asking? Well, according to the 2018 Nobel laureate William Nordhaus, in order to stop at 2 degrees C, it would require roughly 4% of global GDP. What's that in cash terms? Try $5.68 trillion. If it's hard to imagine that number, just think of it as you having someone hand you $100 every second of every minute of every hour of every day for just over 1,800 years. If you could live long enough to collect, then you would be at $5.68 trillion. Don't want to wait that long? Go around the globe and collect every coin and bill from everyone's wallet, couch, piggy bank, Federal Reserve in the world. Checks and credit don't count. And you would be a mere $680 billion shy of being able to pay for it. Got a handle on how much that is now? Okay, so with a base understanding of costs under a harder averaging cap pathway, let's turn to the fourth and final option, which is to just run a cost-benefit analysis to try and settle on a spot where we get the most mitigation for the cheapest possible price. To do this, we need to understand the SCC, or Social Cost of Carbon. So to start, we need to set bounds, and according to the paper titled Long-Term Macroeconomic Effects of Climate Change, a cross-country analysis published 24 of October 2019, those bounds fall at 7.22% reduction in global GDP by 2100 under a business-as-usual scenario, the RCP 8.5 under the IPCC, and a 1.07% reduction in global GDP by 2100 if the world abides by the Paris Accord. See what I mean by disagreement amongst the experts? The difference between 1% and 4% of global GDP is significant, and this serves as a great example of why the Drake equation is analogous here. However, what they do successfully and poignantly argue in this paper is that there are lasting long-term economic effects, which other papers also support. Keep in mind this isn't a linear equation either of economic impact, rather an exponential one. As we look further at a cost-benefit approach, there are several items of note. First and foremost, we need to understand that mortality rates will increase in a warming environment. While yes, mortality rates will likely go down in colder regions today as they warm, areas already struggling with increased heat will see significant increases with Africa and the Middle East bearing the brunt of it. While most of us, if asked, will say, well, the impact will just have to remain an unknown as you can't put a price on human life, there is an extremely talented group of scientists that did. In the morbid but fascinating 84-page paper called Valuing the Global Mortality Consequences of Climate Change Accounting for Adaptation Costs and Benefits, published 29 July 2020, they estimated the increased risk of climate-related mortality rates negatively impacts global GDP by 3.2% under RCP 8.5 or 0.6% under RCP 4.5. What does that mean? Well, let's put it this way. For every 
marginal metric ton of CO2 release costs an approximate 36.6 2019 US dollars. However, out of respect for the future debt, they didn't run that financial calculation on a per-person basis. Damn, Brian. So we're already discussing the cost of death in a cost-benefit scenario. Seriously, do you have anything else we have to look at? Of course I do. One of the more interesting unknowns is the presence of fat tails in climate change impact distribution models. While this is yet another topic of hot debate in the climate economic community, it is definitely of note. To dive further here, let's look at a paper called Fat-Tailed Uncertainty in the Economics of Catastrophic Climate Change, which was published in 2011. And what Weitzman argues here is that in regards to the main models used in climate science, the growing presence of fat tails in the distribution make it extremely difficult to create a standard cost-benefit analysis in order to find an optimal position. Okay, okay, hold up, Brian. What the hell is a fat tail, you ask? Well, simply put, instead of a pleasantly tapered ends of a distribution curve, the ends, or tails, remain relatively thick. In finance, this means higher risk probability, but within climate science, it means increased uncertainty in catastrophic events. Why is it so uncertain? Because we have no historical data to base our assumptions on. We have ice cores that allow us to say with absolute certainty the amount of CO2 and methane present 800,000 years ago, right up until today. From the start of that time frame to the Industrial Revolution, CO2 varied between 180 and 280 parts per million. Today, we're at 390. CH4 or methane never varied above 750 parts per billion, yet today it stands at 1,800. This unprecedented rapid rate of change injects a massive variability into our estimations. Weitzman argues that this creates an almost impossible-to-estimate discount rate in a cost-benefit analysis. In his paper, he says, quote, This kind of exponential discounting, perhaps more than anything else, makes scientists and the general public suspicious of economists' standard BCA, or benefit cost analysis as he calls it, of climate change, since it trivializes even truly enormous distant future impacts, end quote. He goes further on to say, quote, an unprecedented and uncontrolled experiment is being performed by subjecting planet Earth to the shock of a geologically instantaneous injection of massive amounts of greenhouse gases. Yet the standard BCA seems almost impervious to the extraordinarily uncertain probabilities and consequences of catastrophic climate change, end quote. He isn't wrong here. Many climate models seemingly ignore the probability and the impact of extreme events. According to the U.S. EPA, quote, the basic rationale for excluding low-probability, high-impact outcomes from assessments of climate change policies seems to be that the associated scientific uncertainty surrounding them is too large to provide a solid basis for policy decisions, end quote. While this makes sense on the surface, if the fat-tail theory is in fact true— these catastrophic events may not be as low probability as some might suggest. Okay, so while mainly vague, we've now looked at environmental impacts, mortality, and have gained a better understanding of why fat tails and extreme weather events introduce so much uncertainty. Let's now look at the cost of carbon juxtaposed to the cost of renewables, such as wind and solar. So where do the economics fall on renewables? First off, let me lead with renewables are now cheaper in some areas or instances 
than fossil fuels. And before I get blasted by those that disagree with this science, remember, I'm just the messenger here. You have to look at the full cost. If you were to ask me to compare the price of solar to the price of fossil fuels for a home without a current installation, having to discount the upfront investment over, say, a 10-year break-even analysis, depending on the decision to finance, lease, or purchase, you may have a point. However, that isn't the full story. According to a recent unsubsidized, levelized cost of energy comparison, wind and solar beat coal on a dollar per megawatt hour basis. This first happened in 2018 and the trend is for the gap to continue to widen. You want a number? Okay, so utility-scale solar comes in as low as $32 per megawatt hour and wind at $28 per megawatt hour. Coal, on the other hand, bottoms out at $66 per megawatt hour and even at the high end of $152, which includes a 90% carbon capture system, that price doesn't include the transportation and storage. Awesome, you say. Why don't we just make the switch? Well, on the surface, that's a great question and as the costs of technology decrease and make it ever more appealing, we absolutely will. However, the upfront transition costs, coupled with the political and trade organization pushback, has prevented a more rapid transition. While you may hear some individuals claim that jobs will be lost, a paper called 100% Clean and Renewable Wind, Water, and Sunlight All-Sector Energy Roadmaps for 139 Countries of the World, published in 2017, actually found the opposite to be true. It found that if we were to be able to make that a aggressive move to 100% renewables by 2050, you would have a job loss of 27.7 million, yet a gain of 52 million jobs. And while I've yet to meet a politician that wouldn't want to be part of helping create 24.3 million jobs over the next 30 years, we are faced with the ever-present complaint of fairness and on a global scale. Now, this economic idea of fairness brings us back to Nordhaus, as we do have a fairness problem. Even if we accept the cost, he refers to this as the free rider problem, and it hampers many programs for the public good. Additionally, this problem is even more severe with regards to anthropogenic climate change. You see, even if we accept the daunting task of tackling climate change, there will be those that put on their big boy pants and help pay for it. And then there will be those that reap the positive externalities of others' costly investments, yet ride along for free. This is exactly why the older generation, I'm generalizing here, can sit back and not be aggressive, yet the youth are rallying for change because the future pays while the present rides free. How do we solve this? Well, a proposal by Nordhaus is to simply create a club, a climate club to be exact. In his club, member countries paid dues through financing the cost of abatement. Non-members, then, are penalized through high tariffs to anyone in the club. So let's say, for instance, and God forbid, the U.S. pulls out permanently of the Paris Accord while the other signatory nations establish a climate club. Since the U.S. continues to subsidize and expand coal and refuses to fund abatement projects on a national scale, it would then have high tariffs on any and all goods 
sold to any signatory nation of the Paris Accord. For this simulation, Nordhaus broke the world into 15 regions and, using a variation of the DICE model, looked at tariff rates and the number of participating regions. He found that with a target price of $50 per ton of CO2, significant jumps in participating regions occurred at 3% and 5% tariff rates. By a 6% tariff rate, you would see 13 of the 15 global regions participating and not making a gain to 14 regions until a 9% tariff was hit. Does this make sense? Well, I'll leave that to you to debate. But I will say that it's at least a solid suggestion for motivating the world and to prevent a fallout of any agreement akin to the Kyoto Protocol. So where do we stand after all this? Well, we know now that the true social cost of global warming is the sum of all environmental externalities, and as frustrating as it is, ethical and forward-thinking individuals can do very little to slow it on their own. As Weitzman elegantly puts it, quote, practical men and women of action have a low tolerance for vagueness and crave some kind of answer. So they have little patience for even a whiff of fuzziness from two-handed economists. Further, at the end of the day, policymakers must decide what to do on the basis of an admittedly sketchy economic analysis of a gray area that just cannot be forced to render a clear, robust answer, end quote. As such, we just need to swallow the hard pill of cost and turn to the social determinants and socio-ecological changes we need to make in order to affect change. However, that is a conversation for next week. And that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees, as well as the first part of our three-part mini-series, What Stands in Our Way. Hopefully you gained some insight from the show today, and I do encourage you to join me next week as we look into the social obstacles we face in order to address anthropogenic climate change. And aside from checking out all the latest information on the website, blog, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, keep it south of two degrees.